Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley, the Hacker Maker. In each episode, I have a unique guest sharing their advice on getting started in cybersecurity. And today I'm very excited to have on the show Randy Parkman from Binary Defense. Uh, If you're kind of new to the industry, you may not know of Binary Defense, but Binary Defense was started by Dave Kennedy along with like his trusted set company. Dave's really well known in the industry. And it was recommended to me that Randy be a guest on my show. Uh, Randy's got a lot to offer to people wanting to get into the industry and just a perfect fit for this show. So uh, welcome to the show, Randy. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Philip. Um, I appreciate what you do with the podcast. And I really like this idea of helping more people get into the industry Um, and happy to share what I know. Well, it's always good to have like-minded people that are interested, you know, because one of the things too is, you know, as individuals, we can't do it all, all, all our by ourselves. We need other people to help. So more voices we have, the better. And, you know, each one of these stories kind of resonate different with people. So your story may resonate with someone uh, that may not really get the other stories. So uh, I'm sure that our listeners are going to get a lot of great value out of out of this podcast. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I think, just like you said, it takes a lot of people working together and cybersecurity is, if anything, a community. That's what I've benefited probably the most from is all of these other people, their different perspectives, um, their different experiences all coming together, being willing to share information about how to uh, get the job that you want or how to get stuff done a little bit faster, a little bit better, or just sharing some real tactical information about um, you know, what kind of threats are out there and how we can defend against them. So before we get started down into the recommendations on uh, certifications and experience and all that, why don't you share with our audience your background? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I went to a university to study computer science because I was really interested in programming. That's, that's what I uh, enjoyed doing uh, when I was in high school, and I wanted to do that professionally. Uh, but while I was in the university... Um, like most students, I had issues with uh, paying for all the expenses, and I really needed the uh, extra income of having some internships. So I looked for internships and I looked for scholarships, and uh, both of those really led me to be interested in cybersecurity. Um, I got real lucky and got the opportunity to participate in a scholarship sponsored by the NSA and the National Science Foundation called the Information Assurance Scholarship Program. And uh, that program is still going strong. There's lots of opportunities for students. So 
anybody who's listening to the podcast who is currently um, either undergrad or in their graduate studies, definitely recommend checking that out. Um, that was great for me in two ways. One is because um, it required me to take a focus in my studies on cybersecurity, which was then just called information assurance. And I got the chance to develop some lab exercises, some hands-on practical for other students who would come after me, um, which really got me enthusiastic about all the things cybersecurity related. I got to uh, learn about how to exploit uh, programs by overflowing the stack and getting your own code to run and uh, then try to write that up so that other people could follow along and, and understand how to recognize those attacks and how to, how to find the opportunities to exploit other programs. Um, the other reason that that scholarship program was great for me and a real blessing was that it forced me to take a job um, with the government uh, after I got out of college. And as a student, I have to tell you, I was looking at that as a downside, like, oh, I'm not going to have a choice. I wanted my own freedom, my own choices. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, but I didn't realize at the time how hard it is to get that first job out of college and to break into the industry when you have zero experience. So um, even though I had a bunch of internships that, that helped me out, um, I really benefited from having one year of um, experience that was pretty much set up for me. I got to go work uh, for the Air Force as a civilian in a high-performance computing shared resource center, which is basically just computers with a whole lot of CPU, a whole lot of RAM that lots of people take turns using because they solve big uh, scientific calculations. Um, so I got to work security there. And uh, let me tell you, there's some interesting threat actors uh, when you're talking about uh, military research. So definitely got to see some interesting things there and uh and face off against some interesting adversaries with pretty advanced techniques for that time um after that i went to uh, work for a small company big change going from uh, a giant uh, government organization to a small company with like 30 employees and i really liked that feeling um, i did software development when in c for a while and then i ended up going back into computer security uh, when I took a job with the FBI. So um, that's something else I want to recommend, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the, the recommendations. But uh, that was a big part of my formation as a security professional was getting to work on FBI investigations and all of the training opportunities that that afforded me, all the SAN certifications, the, the things that I probably couldn't have paid for on my own. But I got the opportunity to get those certifications, get the training, and then apply it to actual casework um, and doing some things that really mattered and, and that were exciting for me too. So after uh, the FBI, where I stayed for 15 years because I liked it a lot, it was a, a meaningful mission and a great group of people to work with, I decided to go back to private uh, industry and work for a small company again. I really liked that feeling. Um, and I just really resonated with the mission of binary defense. Um, I kind of looked back over my time at the FBI and I thought about what did I like the best? What was the thing that was most rewarding to me and fulfilling personally? And that was when I got the opportunity to take a unique position that I had by um, analyzing a command and control server that we'd seized from one of the threat groups um, or taking some inside information about what what this uh, threat group was going to do next and uh, finding ways to share that appropriately with private security. I know sometimes 
Um, the government is a little slow to get things done, and I kind of understand why there's so many la layers of approval that are required before you publish something uh, that's going to go out to the public. But I loved it when I got the chance to take some of this threat intel, uh, write up things that were really meaningful, like these are the behaviors that you should look for. These are the the things that are built into this malware that I analyzed, and you can guarantee, like, and unless they change the malware, it's going to do these things on your system every time, and you can look for these with your EDR or with your SIM or whatever. I loved sharing that stuff and then hearing feedback from people in private industry that, you know, they had actually used this information, had stopped some threat, and it was no longer a problem on their system. So at Binary Defense, where I've been for the last three years heading up the threat hunting team and the counterintelligence teams, um, I got the chance to do that every day. Instead of it just being an aside and something that I got to do occasionally, I get to do it all the time. And instead of going through layers of approval and waiting for a long time for the government to release this you know, uh, Intel product, I just get on Slack channels of, of threat uh, Intel sharing groups, or I communicate with my customers, or I publish a blog and I can get it done right away as soon as possible. So it makes me really happy to get to see the, the impact of my work and my team's work and uh, get that real positive feedback from others that they're able to stop threats or that we find the threats and stop them ourselves. That's that's just a real satisfying feeling. Yeah, that that's really interesting. The the threat intelligence background and threat hunting, because you know so many people see red teaming or pen testing, and that's the first thing they want to do, and they don't realize there's a lot of really cool and interesting jobs out there. I mean, the threat hunting and and threat intelligence type work is you know sounds really interesting, and I would think since so many people want to go into red teaming and pen testing, I would think that would make for opportunities for people to to get into another area of the industry. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, just the other day, I saw a graph of responses to a survey where people, um, uh, they said what job in cybersecurity they thought was the most interesting, the, the most exciting, and the one that they wanted to get into. And threat hunting actually topped that list. It was just slightly edging out uh, red team or pen tester. Um, and uh, I, I thought that was really telling that um, there's a whole lot of jobs and some of them on that chart, I was kind of surprised like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't even think about that. That's a whole nother career path that somebody could get into. And in my, my job so far, I've gotten the chance to interview a bunch of people, to talk to people who want internships and to get to know a lot of people kind of coming up in the industry and realized there are great fits for people all over the place, you know, and it's a mistake to think. Uh, just because I don't do X, you know, just, just just because I'm not interested in this one skill that you think is like the key skill that you need in cybersecurity. No, that doesn't mean anything. It just means that those jobs that require that skill, that's probably not something exciting for you, but there's something else. Um, even, you know, I talked to somebody who is super passionate about user education and training. And, you know, my experience with that had been, wow, that's just kind of like an, a side thing. And you take this web-based training or, you know, look at some slides or something. But no, this person was so excited about it. They had come up with ways to engage people, to like really get this message across, to do in-person training in a way that was immensely impactful. And the organizations that they worked with saw a huge increase in security posture because all of their employees were excited about security. And I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? This one person with this one really key skill that I wouldn't have even thought about, 
they actually probably made more of a positive difference for this company's security than all the other things put together. So I think there's a place for everybody and you just kind of have to find your passion and see where that fits. Yeah. One of the things too, you mentioned that too, is another thing that's a good example there is, is playing toward you to your strengths. So it seems like to me, and it's took, you know, it's amazing how we're constantly learning throughout our life. I mean, I'm almost 57. So there's things I haven't learned until I was 50 some odd years old that you think it would be obvious, but sometimes you just kind of, you know, it's, and you encourage people to try for what they're doing, but sometimes it's something you really pick up on and it comes easy, then it kind of makes sense that you would kind of uh, explore that area at least. Yeah, you make a really good point. And I, I want to kind of pivot on that and say, when you're in uh, a certain skill area in cybersecurity, you know, you've, you've kind of found your groove, you're, you're doing really well. It is amazingly um, helpful. It is amazingly effective to go study some other aspect of cybersecurity. And the one that I definitely want to call out more than anything else is if you are on the defense side, if you're threat hunting, if you're SOC analyst, if you're a security engineer, take some time to learn some red team skills. That is so valuable. Um, one of the things that I, I really lucked out on with uh, my previous job in the FBI is I got the chance to work on both sides of offensive and defensive and threat intelligence research. And when you understand what the adversaries are doing, and I use that term to mean both sides, because if you're the red team, your adversaries are the threat hunters and the SOC analysts. And if you are the, um, the defenders, your adversaries are the threat actors. I'm not going to say your adversaries are the red team because they're actually helping you to make your security better. But um, whoever your adversaries are, learn their skill. Because when you know what they're what tools they use and kind of how they're going about it, get in that mindset. It helps you tremendously to, to uh, predict the next move when you're in the middle of an incident response and you kind of see the, the commands that have been run so far. If you've done those things before yourself, you kind of know where they're going, right? You're like, oh, I can see like they're, they're going after these kind of passwords pretty hard. I need to look to see if there's any authentication using those um, accounts. And I bet I know where they're going with those accounts that they're trying to get at, right? Like you can kind of get one step ahead of them. Um, the other thing that it helps you out with is um, having an offensive mindset, whether you're on the defense or the, the um, red team side, helps you tremendously because on the defense, there are so many opportunities for active defense, for putting internal honeypots and traps out there. If you know the tools that the uh, threat actors are using or the red team might be using, um, you can actually fool those tools. You know how to... Uh, put signals out there that are going to uh, make them go the wrong direction or uh, put some honey tokens in memory that you hope that they'll find and use and then you'll get alerted quietly or um, you know do something against responders so that when they're putting out those um, you know uh, responses uh, to uh, requests for uh, 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 the uh, DNS information or the uh, uh, what's the the local name resolution? Um, L then LLMNR. Yes, LLMNR. Right. But when you when you put out those requests and then you get a response and you know that somebody's out there on your network using Responder, like those are key signals. Those are pure threat intelligence with no noise. 
So having that offensive mindset and thinking about not just how do I lock everything down and, and keep anything bad from happening, but instead assuming that there is always somebody in my network or trying to break into my network, how do I do battle against them? How do I take the fight to them and fool them so that I know what they're doing and they lose all the advantage? You know, that's a, a skill set in itself just to, because one of the things I experienced a few years ago, I was doing a side black box pen test of an organization where you're testing physical security. And we actually got into the organization and they had a lot of, you know, endpoint protection, a lot of these different things. But the thing that was crazy about it, we're trying to stay quiet, but we're like into the last days of the pen test. And I was in a conference room and to the point where I started having to run things like responder and start running, uh, Nessus scans and all this stuff. And no one picked up on anything. Mm -hmm. Just be able to tune your systems to be able to pick up that stuff and, and just kind of discern it from the noise on your network has got to be a, a skill that's great to learn in itself. Yeah, it really is. And I think that that brings us to another really good point that it is so valuable having feedback and collaboration between the red team and the blue team. And it goes both ways. So, you know, as a red teamer, you're kind of used to writing a good report and you hope that uh, the people that read your report understand it and they're going to implement some of your recommendations. But there's also an opportunity when the threat hunters catch the red team um, to not just, you know, uh, keep it a secret how they did it, but actually uh, reveal some of that to the red team. And I know some people get into this mindset, you know, it's so adversarial. You're like, oh, the red team is, you know, my adversary and I caught them and I get real excited and I'm not going to reveal any secrets. But actually you do best when you help the red team be as good as they can be, right? So sharing with them like, hey, here's this rule that they got you caught. The input that you get as a defender is um, from the red team side, oh, wow, hey, I could do something this other way and then you wouldn't catch me. That's an opportunity to increase your defenses, to improve your threat hunting capabilities. So I think um, uh, kind of sharpening each other and uh, uh, trading uh, post-mortems. I mean, you don't want to uh, share your secrets in the middle of a pen test, but you know, once it's all over, it's really great to, to have that debrief and share information both ways. Yeah. And I think just building that rapport, because, you know, I've seen some organizations where, you know, the incident response team were just got upset because the red team was getting a lot of victories and they would be doing things that they weren't trying to go undetected and they're trying to stop them. They just kind of got a bad relationship going, but it seems like when people form the partnerships that they're going to help each other because even the red, the red team can get get better. The defenders can get better. If the red team can figure out how to, uh, you know, obfuscate and bypass, then they can work with the, the IR team and the defenders to, to be able to detect it. And they're just making it for better practice for each other that they're both getting better. Just kind of building yeah. on what you said there. I completely agree. And I'm really excited to see kind of the rise of more purple team as an intentional um, practice where you bring those skills together and you uh, you have a period of time where you're you're trading that information, you know, solidly back and forth, making everybody better. And then you go and you actually have the red team exercise and you get to test everything and see see if all your purple teaming paid off. And it usually does. Yeah, I really, I'm a big fan of purple teaming. You know, you can mature your defenses so much quicker that way, because if you wait for cycles between pen tests, by the time everything gets remediated, you know, it takes several, you know, years or months to mature your 
your environment, but it seems like if you can take Mimikatz out of the hands of an attacker, that's one tool they don't have or some other, some of the other tools that you can use during the, the, uh, purple team engagements. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the people that, that listen here are trying to get into the industry. So what are your recommendations on certifications and things to do to try to get started in the industry? Well, this is going to be a long answer, but I hope it's really um, helpful to people to understand uh, kind of where these things fit. So um, let me start by explaining my own philosophy and, and how binary defense evaluates people uh, coming to look for work here. And then I'll explain kind of how some other companies do it and maybe the reasons why, which hopefully will help people understand um, where their strategy should be. So at Binary Defense, um, yeah, at least in my teams and uh, the teams that I know about, we focus on what people can do rather than who they are, where they've come from, or what certifications they might have. And uh, if you look at our job postings, I always make sure that I've got on my job postings, um, you know, a degree is not required. Certifications are not required. They're appreciated. You know, I don't want to uh, devalue any of those things and uh, make anybody feel bad about them because they do have value, but they shouldn't be barriers. They shouldn't be gatekeepers um, to the extent that you possibly uh, can make them not barriers because there are so many great people, very talented people out there who could do the job very well, who don't necessarily have the certifications, or maybe they've worked hard on some other certifications. They don't have the ones that you uh, happen to put on your uh, job requirement. So um, to do that, requires a lot of extra work on the part of an employer. It means looking deeper. It means reading a lot of resumes. So one tip I can give to job seekers when you're trying to work for a company that, that really tries to evaluate people on their strengths is read the job requirements and try to make your resume as succinct as you can. Because if you've got a five-page resume and somebody's trying to read hundreds of resumes that have come in this week, they're probably not going to read all five pages where they're, they're going to get eyes crossed before they get to the end. So try and put things right up front and make it easy for people to see. Um, the, the other thing that I want to recommend is that people look to the companies that they want to work for and figure out what their policy is. And let me explain. Some larger companies have literally thousands of people apply for one opening. Like it is physically impossible for the hiring manager to get all their management and all their work and customer relations jobs done and also wade through thousands of resumes and actually read them all. It's just not going to work. And so they'll often apply some kind of filter just to help them automate the process of getting through these. And they understand, I think any good hiring manager understands they're losing out potentially, most certainly on some really great applicants, but they just don't have the time. They don't have the bandwidth. And so they need to say, hey, if you don't have you know this certification or or this degree, um, we're just not going to consider you. And then they just use that to knock their their applicants down by half or a third or whatever. So if you know you want to work for some company, ask, find out what's important to them. What are their minimum requirements? And then ask yourself the question: If you don't have those already, is it worth your investment? in those to get this job. It might not be. Maybe you just need to go look for another company that is a little bit more open and a little has a little bit more time to invest in really evaluating people. Um, and kind of understanding that and not, not getting discouraged by getting those rejections, especially the automated rejections. 
um, and kind of understanding, you know, how this works. That's, that's really important. I think you've probably heard it before, but this also is so true. I found this to be 100% accurate. You will get so much farther by having a personal recommendation, by getting to know people. And um, you'll also learn a lot more about that company and their culture. And if you really want to work there, maybe you don't. Um, but getting to know somebody and then asking them for a recommendation, that's going to automatically cut through all of those artificial filters that they've got. And uh, you might actually you know, get an interview with somebody when your um, application through the website might have been rejected. I'm not saying don't apply through the website. Do, do all the things that you need to do to get uh, your chances as high as they can be. But, but getting to know somebody who works at the company really helps out a lot. So the question that people might have is, how do you even do that, right? Like if you're new, you're, you're a student, you're just out of college, you know, how do you get into those groups? How do you get to know somebody? Um, I mean, you could try randomly reaching out to people on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I don't know, that, that probably works about as well as randomly approaching people in a, in a room and trying to get to know them kind of depends on your, your charisma and personality and how they feel that day, I guess. But what I would recommend is um, something a lot more practical. And that is look at the job that you want to get into. And let me give the example of like malware reverse engineer. Let's say you figure out that's something you really like to do. And understand that's a rare skill. Not everybody likes doing malware analysis because it's tedious and it requires a, an extreme attention to detail. But if you, if you know that you like doing that, pick some malware. There's tons of them out there. There's lots of free samples on Malware Bazaar and other places. You can get fresh samples all the time. Learn to reverse engineer like one family really well and then start writing blogs and tweet about it and start sharing your information into the community. I will give one really important practical tip. When you're doing this, use a pseudonym. Don't use your real name because if you put out really good threat research, you can, you better believe that the threat actors, the people who wrote that malware, they are your closest followers. They're your most avid readers. They're going to read everything that you publish. And the last thing you want is for them to know your real name and, you know, look up your phone number and call you. Um, it's nice to have uh, Twitter DMs open or something so that you can get messages and, uh, you know, you might want to hear from them, especially if they want to uh, play a little game and, you know, try and trade information with you. Um, I've seen that happen, actually. Um, but, but don't use your real name when you do that. Um, getting back to the, the main thread though, if, if you start doing that, if you start publishing things, you're going to get noticed. And as soon as you get noticed, you can get invitations to some of these private research communities where there's other people following the same threat that you've been publishing on. And then you can start sharing some of the more sensitive details privately with them. That is gold. That is your way in to the industry. Even if you don't have a job, if you're showing that you've got the skills, people are going to be falling all over themselves to hire you. Very interesting. You, you got me all interested in, in uh, threat hunting now. Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am interested in a free class on malware reverse engineering at DEF CON. So uh, anybody interested in a little uh, uh, hour and a half introduction, uh, we're going to have some fun. It doesn't cost anything. Very cool. So do you have any other tips for, for people trying to get started in the industry? Yeah, there's so many things that I've seen work really well for people. I kind of want to share these. Um, one of them is um, start with a government job. So um, the government, uh, I'm sure it's, it's actually true. In fact, I know it's true because I've talked to police all around the world 
Um, in most countries, the police have a really hard time recruiting people with technical skills who also want to work for the salary that they're able to offer. And it's going to be a lower salary than you can get in the industry for sure. Um, not, not hopefully not a uh, poverty salary, you know, it's, it's going to be decent, but not quite the same as what you could get. And so oh, they have a, a really hard time recruiting people. If you can get in through an internship or, you know, you apply and, and uh, are able to cut through all of the um, uh, layers and layers, they, the government agency is willing to spend some money to train you in all kinds of things. So um, I'm not saying just use the job for the training, but get as much as you can out of it. Um, when I was working for the FBI, I got to take a bunch of SANS classes and a Mandiant malware analysis class that I never would have been able to afford if I was paying for it out of pocket. Um, but better yet, I got the experience to apply those certifications to real work, um, to take the information that I learned in the classes and put it to use on real cases that um, got me the valuable experience that I could then apply to other jobs later on. So um, you might find that, you know, you just love that government job and the mission and helping people and all the cool things that you get to do and stay there for a long time like, like I did. Or you might say, you know, hey, after five years, um, you kind of paid, paid back, you know, all the stuff that they've uh, given you and you can pivot that experience into an absolutely phenomenal private sector career. I would imagine, you know, if you're working in somewhere like the FBI or one of those agencies like that, maybe if you're not making the greatest money in the world, I would think after investing the time in there and then once you move over to the private sector, I would imagine you could probably almost make up for it with, uh, you know, having that on your resume and be able to move into other areas. Because, I mean, one thing people know that you're able to get like a certain type of secret, secret clearance and the experience you have would be kind of uncomparable than what you may get in private industry. So I think there would be some rewards to that on your resume. I think so. And um, I think really any position of responsibility, so whether it's government or private sector or uh, whatever it is that you're doing, even even being a volunteer leading a bunch of people in a, um, uh, a not-for-profit kind of group, if you can show a company that might want to hire you, that you have had responsibility and that you've lived up to it, that you um, upheld the things that you were supposed to do, and that you did a really good job, um, that people can trust you, that people can count on you, um, especially in the security industry, that goes a long way. Because um, if there's something that is an absolutely critical requirement for people who are entrusted with security, it's that they be responsible, that they um, take accountability for their work. They do the best job that they can and they own up to it when they don't. Um, and that they can basically be relied on and trusted, um, with some pretty heavy responsibilities. So, um, I'll give another example and I don't want to, you know, share people's names or, or details without their permission, but, um, having watched somebody who was in a position, um, to help with a, a particular threat group, and rather than just limiting himself to his professional duties and what he was required to do, he reached out to others um, who were also battling against that threat group. And he just took on this leadership role where he said, I'm going to organize this information and try and make it as useful as I can to everybody. 
he didn't get paid for all those extra hours that he was working. Um, but he showed that he had what it took. And basically everybody who was part of this group wanted to hire him because they saw like, if I give this person something, they're going to, they're going to get it done. They're going to get the job done and they're going to do a great job with it. So I think seizing those opportunities, if you see them and you can step up and volunteer, um, or just even getting involved in conferences as a volunteer and kind of working your way up to be more and more responsible. Those are all great ways to show people that you can handle um, whatever it is that they're going to throw at you. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the the uh, volunteering at conferences because I've had some former students here in the local Dallas-Fort Worth area during our Security B-Sides conference that were new to the community. One of the first things I taught them in class is a network, get involved with the community. And, you know, they came in, they're pretty unknown, but, you know, after you help prepare for a conference and then you've been through conference day volunteering and running stuff, you know, you get to know some people pretty well and they get to see your work ethic and, and that's a big, big plus. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll share one more story that I think is, um, kind of cool and maybe might motivate somebody to seek out a career in uh, the government or federal law enforcement. So um, when I was working at the FBI, um, I'd been there for a while and uh, we hired somebody new on uh, who's also going to be a computer scientist like myself. And he was straight out of school, but he'd been an intern already. So he'd taken advantage of a cooperative education program where he got to work a semester, go to school for a semester and work again. And he'd worked in a computer forensics lab. So he, even though he just graduated from school, he had some experience behind him. And then right out of the gate, as soon as he started full time with the FBI, um, he got some cases to work on and he just immediately proved that he was reliable. Like everything that was given to him, he got it done and he kept up people updated with what he was doing and he did a quality job. So an opportunity came up where um, law enforcement in another country uh, asked for the help of the United States and they wanted somebody to come help with a difficult case and do some really tricky computer forensics work that was going to involve like the latest and greatest technology and some uh, encryption issues that uh, needed to be addressed appropriately. And it wasn't something that was uh, easy to find somebody to do this. So they asked for help from outside the country. Um, I was already scheduled to be in another country at that same time that they needed the help. And uh, this guy, even though he hadn't been on for even a year, um, he got the opportunity and and he accepted it to go out and help this other law enforcement agency. And sure enough, he rose to the occasion, even though um, he was new, a more experienced person went with him, but he ended up crushing it. He did all the work. He was the one who stayed up all night working on the forensics. He, he correctly identified what was the most important stuff to get done. Um, and he was providing real-time digital forensics results while the police investigation was ongoing. Like, uh, providing real-time updates to the investigator that really helped to make this case a great one. And doing those kind of things, I mean, you don't get that opportunity um, in the private sector so much. That's, that's the kind of thing that you only get the chance to do something kind of cool and exciting like that, um, especially as a new person. Uh, when you get into something really high, um, you know, high stakes and uh, fast-paced like the FBI, very cool. So we're getting down towards the end of the show. Are there any other tips or uh, recommendations you would have for people getting started out? 
Yeah, I mentioned it before, but I'd really encourage people to look for internships. So um, I'm going to use this to both encourage students and also uh, talk to employers a little bit too. One of the things that I started when I got to Binary Defense is an, a new internship program for people to get into threat hunting. And um, the premise of this is that there are a ton of people with really great skills, who have the mindset of an investigator, um, who are curious about um, what these threats look like and who are super creative about hunting who don't have any recognition at all. They don't have the years of experience. They don't have the, the uh, certifications. They don't have maybe the, the right degree program from the premier uh, university or whatever, but they're, they're willing and they're able and they're just anxious to get to prove themselves, right? So we have an internship program where we don't require any kind of certifications. We don't care where you're at in school or if, you've, if you're even going to school. Um, what we're really looking for is just people in that situation that don't have the experience, but they've got the drive and they've got the skills maybe that they've developed all on their own. Um, when they get an interview uh, for the internship program, the one question that we ask is, if you have you know, a couple of months part-time to work with a fantastic team and all these tools, what do you want to research? What's a threat research area that you are passionate about, that you want to dedicate some time to, knowing that you're getting paid to do it, and then how are you going to share that with the community? We want to make sure that our research benefits not just us, but the broader community. That's, that's a big part of who Binary Defense is as a company. So um, basically, we just um, pick people on the strength of their response to that question. If they've got a great idea, and that great idea is not just a pie-in-the-sky kind of an idea, but it's obviously something that they've thought about, they've researched already, they kind of know, hey, this is this is an area that's going to be impactful, and um, they come on board. We give them, uh, you know, a paycheck and a, a regular schedule and the support of some really experienced people, both at Binary Defense and Trusted Sec. We share a, a, sh a chat channel, and uh, the interns can talk to everybody. Um, and then at the end of their internship, they publish a GitHub repo of a new tool that they wrote, or they'll publish a blog or maybe give a conference talk or do a webinar or whatever it is that they want to do to share back. And then sometimes they show that, hey, they're really good at this job. If we've got an opening and they want it, you know, we've, we've hired several people right out of the internship program. If not, if it doesn't work out or they didn't really like, you know, the job that they were doing, but uh, the, the research is good, they can use that as part of their portfolio and go show that they've got some professional experience, that they've published something, they can kind of prove the knowledge that they have. It kind of gives them a leg up. So my advice to um, students is look for those opportunities. You know, uh, we're a small company. We can only hire so many interns. And every time I put out an internship, we literally have hundreds of people apply right away. Um, but um, uh, also to companies, if you don't have a program like that, really consider it. It, it pays great dividends. And yeah, it takes work. It definitely takes a lot of effort to put this program together, but it is really important. If all you're doing is trying to recruit from other companies, people with, you know, three to five years experience or whatever, all you're really doing is shuffling talent around. Um, and that's fine. You know, it's, it's okay to do that. People need chance to jump to a different company, but we also, as an industry, we need to be bringing new people in. We need to be hiring people. We need to give people an opportunity to learn. Um, I'm a huge fan of John Strand and the uh, anti-siphon training. Um, there's some really great training that's 
pay what you want and it is accessible to everybody and it gives people these skills. I'm trying to emulate that and, and put on some free training myself um, and affordable training. But uh, these internship opportunities, I think, are key. That gives people not just you know a classroom experience, but it gives them hands-on. It gives them some real-world experience. That's great. And I, I love what y'all are doing there. That's that's a, a great way of doing internships, you know, because some some places you're still getting a hands-on experience, but some of the things they do are just not as impactful. But to be doing actual security research is really good to to have on a resume. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those things that you can show future employer that you're you're dependable, you're responsible, and you're smart and you know how to get things done. So I think that's great. And uh, one last piece for companies. I, I think hopefully this has mostly gone by the wayside, but internships need to be paid. Um, I think everybody needs to remember what it was like when they were a student, when they were you know, struggling to make it. The last thing that you need is somebody to take advantage of your need for experience and uh, you know, uh, try to not pay you for doing good work for the company. So uh, even, if it's, even if it's not you know, a huge salary, um, uh, intern appropriate salary is uh, absolute necess- necessity. Yeah, I agree with that. And then plus the fact that the intern has paid experience opposed to free experience, you know, it's professional versus not. So I think that makes a big difference. And, you know, some of these companies, I mean, you know, they don't have to pay a ton, but just pay something. I mean, it's, and I think at the same time too, a lot of people don't appreciate internships, but I think if, uh, you know, the interns realize that they're appreciated and uh, a company's paying them to do the job, I think they're going to appreciate the job better. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I was an intern a lot uh, during college. My friends started calling me the the professional intern for a while. Um, But uh, I definitely experienced um, a a lot of great variety of things uh, through that, those different internship programs. And I learned a lot about myself too, where I want to work, what I really love doing, and also where I don't want to work. And uh, that was super helpful to avoid you know, a long, drawn-out process of trying to prepare for a job that ultimately I wasn't going to be satisfied with anyway. Well, uh, thanks for sharing your story and all that great advice. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be a guest on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having this podcast. I think it's a great uh, resource for the community and I hope it benefits. I know it benefits a lot of people. So thanks for putting it on. My pleasure. Thanks everyone for joining and we'll be sharing Randy's uh, social media on the show notes. So you'll be able to reach out to him if you have any questions. So thanks for joining. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.